0: Welcome to the Breaking Into Startups podcast, where we interview people who came from non-traditional backgrounds and who found jobs in tech. Today, we have an interesting chat with Nico Roberts, who does a deep dive into what it means to run a customer success team at a startup. Customer success does not mean customer support. Startups nowadays realize they need to have people on the front lines who can communicate with the customer, relay customers' needs and bridge the gap between different teams within the company to ensure the success of the product. Anyone who is interested in sales, operations, or product management should tune in to learn how customer success position could jumpstart their career at a startup.
1: Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. So I'm here with the homies Arch and Timor Meister, and this is the Breaking Startups Podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people
0: what we're doing today? Yeah, so today is another day uh, when we're recording uh, the Breaking Into Startups episode coming to you from Hack Reactor. It's a pretty, a little bit of a cloudy day, and. Uh, A lot of our friends are probably getting brunch right now, but we're sitting here with a very special guest and we're about to talk on how to break into startups. Arthur, take it away. Thanks, Timur. So today we have Nico Roberts, who is a head of customer success at a really cool YC company called Onboard IQ. And he's also a number one FIFA player in the office, at least self proclaimed. Before that, he was a consultant at Deloitte and he has a very interesting story of going from South Africa to Missouri to become a consultant and then making his big break into startups. But before we begin, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and uh, where you're from. Sure. Thanks, Otra.
2: So it was, it was a beautiful October 10th morning. My mother gave birth and a wonderful <laughs> gift that was me came out. And no, I'm originally from good old sunny South Africa. I love the continent, love the whole country. And yeah, came over, as, as you said, for high school, grew up there. I loved it. You know, as most Africans do, you either into rugby, cricket, or soccer. I was the rugby cricket guy. Took quite a bit of woodwork, metalwork classes in high school. Loved it. Learned a bunch. Had a couple of first loves, had my heart broken, and then came to good US of A for the American dream, eh? So, yeah, came over 2004. I spent my senior year of high school here. Loved it. It's kind of like living in a movie for you. You know, you got the basketball court over the swimming pool. You got everyone with little cheerleaders and little outfits, people wearing, <laughs> you know, what we call civvies. That's probably the toughest thing. When you've come from a structure like South Africa does, even the public schools, where you have a school uniform to wear every single day, all of a sudden been thrown into an environment where you have to wear normal clothes, it's super stressful because you don't know what to wear. And what people are going to think, you're going to think, oh shoot, did I wear that
1: the same day as yesterday, you know, the day after? Can you tell us a little bit about the culture change, like how it was in Africa versus going to school in, in America? Definitely. So South Africa, you know, it's a little,
2: we were colonized by the, the British and then the Dutch as well. And so we're probably, will probably say, probably about 20 years behind the, the times of the West in that, you know, even with public schools, we had to wear tie to school every single day with the blazer. When the school bell rang, we used to line up in front of the classroom and the girls would go in first, sit down. Once all the girls were sat down, all the guys would go in afterwards. You know, all the the teachers were, you know, sir and ma'am and nothing else. Coming to the States, you know, it, it's a fantastic culture shock in that one of on my first days, people rocking up in pajamas, you know, flip-flops, that, that type of thing. Got nice little dreadlocks going on. You know, the girls just make up, to, you know, to do the crown. And uh, it was great because it's such such a free, sort of unrestricted way of living that in South Africa, it's a little more boxed, a little more structure. So I think that was the biggest difference I noticed from the get-go.
1: Yeah. And so you're passionate about woodmaking in That's it. high school? That's it. And then when you decided to go to college in the States, like what, did you decide to pursue wood making in college?
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Great question. No, I actually came over and and in college, I actually majored in accounting, international business and management information systems. And I think that the biggest thing there is, and actually it's a really funny story. Growing up, you always, you know, you watch tons of American movies and screens and I was sort of set on becoming an American director, producer of film. So when I came over and I was in high school, I went up to Chicago and I spent a lot of time with uh, Columbia College. And I was Mm -hmm. dead set. I was going to come in, make a Hollywood blockbuster and sort of live that dream. And I rocked up and the person gave me the school tour. You know how the universities give you guys tours had big, you know, blue hair, spiked up tons of earrings, you know, tattoos It was such a shock to my system. I said, you know, I'm not ready for this yet. So then I looked for the most conservative school in mid-Missouri I could, (laughs) and that was Westminster. And that's what I kind of stuck with. And uh, my dad at that time said, Hey, listen, I want you to work on plan B before you work on plan A. To him, plan B was always get a great education get a solid degree, start building the foundation, and then whatever the passion is, the plan A, you can sort of jump into. And that's exactly what I did. So accounting was sort of a social pressurized from, from the good old, you know, country of South Africa. A lot of people say it's a great job, you know, tons of security in it. And that's what I ended up doing.
1: Awesome, awesome. So so you're going through all your classes in school. Mm-hmm. You're thinking about what you want to do. You're taking business, which is pretty broad. Mm-hmm. You could go accounting, you could go finance. Exactly. So what, how did you decide what you wanted to do before you graduated?
2: You know, I, I don't think any, anyone really does. I think, you know, a lot of people have preconceived notions of, you know, my dad's a lawyer, my dad's a doctor, let me go into sort of that that realm or, you know, my mom's in teaching, we should probably use some more of that as well. I literally, what I did, and, you know, I was a part of a fraternity house, what the guys did too is you come in with, hey, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, preconceived notion because you you have seen the success in it through high school. You see, you know, the lawyers, three-piece suits, making bank or the investment bankers, you know, every single day, cutting deals, MMA, You're like, that's my life that's what I want to do. So how do I get there? Great. College, what degree do I need? Okay. Bachelor of Science and X, Y, and Z. Great. That's what I'm going to do. Halfway through, you sort of do the whole self-discovery phase. You know, you sort of meet the girl or the guy and you're like, oh, great. This is, this is where it's got to be and how it's, it's got to go. And then from there, you take yourself all the way through. And uh, yeah. So from straight up from there, I decided, you know what? With along with the fraternity guys, you kind of switch it up. You say, listen, am I going to go the science route, the business route? I'm still have the credits for whatever it is I started with. So let me finish that and then switch it up. And that's how I sort of just stuck on accounting. And also it didn't hurt that, you know, accounting was an easier degree at the school I went to instead of the, you know, nice science and all that. Yeah.
0: Nice. So in the pre-interview, you told us uh, this amazing story of how you actually landed your first gig. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how that happened?
2: Oh yeah. No, hundred percent. So when I graduated or part of, uh, going to school, my dad always said, you know what, go to America, get the American education, get as much as you can from it, come back to South Africa, and then let's try and start a nice little bit business in South Africa. So I said, you know what, Dad, that, that sounds bomb, 100%. And so that was the, the idea the whole way through. And then my senior year of, of college, you know, we graduated in May, and me and some of the fraternity guys said, you know, let's do a r- road trip. So we did a sort of Blue Jays across the, the USA type of thing, and we went to about 19... States in 22 cities in just a little over two and a half months and we were at in nashville tennessee for the cmt awards and we were sitting in a bar called tootsies and so we're at the tootsies bar everything was going well and one of these guys walked up and started chatting to him and at this time don't a couple of drinks in someone's got to sort of sober up to make sure everyone gets home safe and all of that so put up my hand and said boys i've got this one so pretty much, to cut a long story short, so, so we up drinking a little bit of water so I can have a chat to, to this guy. And it turns out, you know, we had tons of common, just spoke about everything under the sun, you know, what's happening, politics at that time and, you know, what's going on with the economy and all of that. And towards the end of it, he said, hey, so what's your story? You said, you graduated, what you want to do? And I said, you know, I'm probably going to head back home, help mom and dad out with a few things. And he said, you know what, I want you to give, give my company a shot. And I said, oh yeah, is, is that right? He goes, yeah. So he, so he slid me his business card. And he was a partner at Deloitte. And so that's when I first got the first in and interviewed up in Chicago. And then, yeah, then probably about three months later, I started in the Chicago office.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. yeah.
0: Amazing story. So did you at that point know what consulting even was? Or like, is that something that you considered doing? Or was this completely out of the left field? You know, I'd never really
2: considered it, to, to be honest. You always kind of hear about the consulting firms. you know, You've got Deloitte and you've got BCG and you've got, got all of those. And so, you know, it's a great question because I'm sitting back to think about it now. Yeah, you always consider, you know, trying to become an expert in something and helping people and train. But at that point in time, honestly, it was so out of left field that I just didn't mind what I did as long as I had a job at that stage that would keep me in the States if I wasn't going to go back home and a job that's fairly decent that I could start working on and honing my skills.
1: And how did your parents feel about the switch up from, you know?
2: Oh, they were super, super pumped. You know, I suppose any parent, when you reach a decent firm, when you graduate college, you know, it's all worth it. The hard work, the money that's been poured into it, you finally have a good paying job. You know, they could go tell their friends, oh, yeah, my son's doing X, Y, and Z in Chicago. That's <laughs> so awesome. And, and so, no, they were very, very proud. So that in turn, you know, just really gave me affirmation that I made the right choice.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so how was your time in consulting? Like, where did that lead you? You know, was it everything you expected?
2: No, it was, it was very different to what I expected. I was always the guy in college that said, hey, listen, if you get a desk job, you're pretty much an idiot. idiot. You know, there's a big world out there. Grind, go do what, what you want want to do. And here I was exactly, you know, I had a desk in Chicago trying to get stuff done. But even then, you know, I still had no idea what I wanted to do. And I think most consultants, when they start, they really don't. So you sort of get put into a position consulting where they think your strength is or where you think your your strength is. And that stage, you know, was more sort of strategy finance, that type of thing. And so I started out sort of helping out in the banking world. And I thought, you know, that's really cool. If I want to become an investment banker, it's a great networking opportunity. I can learn the, the lingo, that type of thing. And about two years into it, I started getting really homesick. And so I said, you know what? I've learned a ton of things from these guys. Anyway, I think from interpersonal communication skills, seeing up data and qualitative, quantitative sort of analytics on that. And I really wanted to apply some of that back to South Africa or Africa in, in general. So I looked for a discipline that allowed me to do that. And that was energy resources mining. And so I know we do a ton of that over in the continent. And so, yeah, Deloitte had an office both in Houston and in Phoenix. Phoenix more for mining and Houston for the oil and gas part. Reached out to a couple of those partners, got on a client that would take me there. So, spent a lot of time out in Africa the last, well, before I joined on board IQ, probably about three, four years straight, doing a lot of consulting on the side of mining, breaking into the Democratic Republic of the Congo, South Africa, all the way up through Zimbabwe a bit. And so, that that was really an eye opening experience.
1: Wow. Wow. And so, during that time when you were doing the consulting in Africa and things like that, how did you kind of like end up deciding to go to San Francisco?
2: So that's a great question. So I was on the way back for, for a trip in September last year, and I was I was tired. I'd done probably about six trips that year already. Uh, my longest trip in, in Congo was actually 13 weeks. And so this was, I think, about a four-week trip. And I was sitting in uh, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, and I was texting Joe. And so who Joe is, Joe was actually Onboard IQ's first employee. And Joe came on right when they started their YC batch. And similar to me, you know, Joe coming through, didn't really have huge aspirations on, you know, going through Y Combinator, coming to San Francisco for a startup, but knew he wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And so he knew our CEO then, uh, Keith, and he sort of jumped into that batch. And so I texted Joe just saying, hey, how's it going? Because Joe worked with me at Deloitte and Joe got the offer from Onboard IQ and, you know, Joe confided in me and said, hey, you think it's a good opportunity? I said, for sure it is a good opportunity. Go ahead, you know, take it with with both arms. At that stage, you're super young, you know, he was 2021 20, at the time. So if you're young enough, just grab with both arms, learn as much as you can, because you never know what's going to happen. So I kept in contact with Joe throughout the month that we was there. That was in May 2015. So now we September 2015 when I'm in the airport. And so we're texting, texting, and Joe goes, Hey, listen, you, you sound a bit tired. You you're considered leaving Deloitte. He said, You know what, Joe? I'm, I'm I'm thinking about it. You know, I've always had the entrepreneurial bug they wanted to take. And yeah, you know, but I've been looking around. He goes, Well, don't do anything. Just stay right there. I want to go talk to our founders, Jeremy and and Keith, and I really want you guys to meet. I said, All right, all right, all right. You know, it's all those things. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, go ahead, s- set it up. Not really thinking much is going to come from it. And so I landed back in the States. And end of September, early October, I get this phone call from, from Keith. And Keith's like, Hey, listen, I want you to, uh, if you wouldn't mind, can I ask you a couple of questions? I said, Yeah, sure, sure, go ahead. He said, Yeah, you know, those are the typical questions. Uh, what are you doing right now? What do you enjoy doing about it? Would you ever consider a startup? Do you know much about startups? I mean, do you have any technical expertise? A lot of people think you have to you have to be a coder in order to break into to tech, and I think that's a huge misconception. But yeah, so I had no coding experience. So yeah, I was brutally honest with the guy. I said, "Listen, I know you guys are trying to look for salespeople. You're super early, and one of the big big metrics you have to hit is you know month over month growth, and that's just just not me. I mean, I've sold stuff. You know, you sold the projects internally and all of that, but I'm not sort of super super well versed. And he was just laughing. He said, all "Right, no, hundred percent." And then towards him, he goes, you know what, I'd love it if you fly out and just sort of meet myself and Jeremy, the two We just like to have an in-person chat. So I did flew out, had an in-person chat and yeah, we just sh- struck it off. I think the biggest thing to them and what I've seen right now is if you don't have the exact skill, that's perfectly fine. If you can hustle and grind, you can learn anything. That's the reason people go to college, right? because you learn. As long as you slay the willingness to learn and the open mind for it. And that's what happened with the Onboard IQ. Then it goes well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit in the pre-chat and a lot of people have these misconceptions that you've been talking about. And I know that you, you went from Africa to Missouri. Now you're considering going to San Francisco. Your parents were involved in the decision-making process, but was there anybody else in the decision-making process that was involved?
2: Oh yeah. hundred percent. So <laughs> my beautiful wife, Katie, she's definitely been a handful and a blessing at the same time. She's always been my cheerleader from day one. You know? When I got the job at Deloitte, she was super, super pumped. She helped me sort of get it, prep for those interviews. Yeah. When she graduated, she came up to Chicago, stayed with me a bunch. She sort of tried to sort, sort it out her life. She works for, for Yelp. So good little shout out to, to Yelp. Great, great company. And uh, yeah, so she, she said, me, you know what? We just got married. So we got married in July. September was my trip. And I sort of started. And she said, you know what? Before kids, before life truly starts hitting us, we're in a sort of unique position. Late 20s myself, mid 20s for her. Why don't you just give it a go? So, the one thing for, for the listeners out there, you often think as well, I need a great idea or I need to have a certain skill set to go join a certain startup. But to me, my concept, my perception was tech. You know, shoot, I, I don't know how to code. I don't have a huge technical background. I don't have a computer science degree. Yes, I have MIS degree, but it was more sort of MIS business and it was access. You know, it's not really a true 100%. Well, I guess it is a, a nice database. Thank you, Microsoft. Um, <laughs> so, she said, you know what? Give it a go. It's completely out of your realm. It's sort of like a fish out of water. One never, never knows. And, you know, the whole idiom and cliche of life is short. It truly is. Truly, truly is. So I did. I jumped straight into it. Nice. So
0: it sounds like your dad gave you the advice of going with plan B, but you had a plan A. So now it sounds like you're on the ground in San Francisco. You're pursuing plan A. Tell us more about what uh, Onboard IQ does. Like, what do you do there? And, uh, like, did it meet your expectations once you got, once you started a job?
2: Great question. Yeah. So Onboard IQ for the guys listening as a known. We are a workforce automation platform. So if you think about the Uber for X model, if you need to scale quickly or if you need to have any type of customized onboarding sort of screening process, we're pretty much the software that does that. It takes you all the way from sourcing to your first in-person interview. So scheduling, background checks, document signing, just sort of switching up any type of customized positions. We do a lot of that. And my role at Onboard IQ, when I first started was more in the sales direction. And as the company grew and started maturing, I switched over to the customer accounts success side and I've been loving it. So I work really closely with product team, the dev team design team, the sales guys, and of course the customer accounts people. And what we pretty much do is we have our list of all the customer accounts and we figure out, okay, we are a pretty early stage startup. So there's gonna be some bugs, there's gonna be some, you know, a few learning curves, a few little humps we're gonna get over. So identifying which customers really need what, what the issues are, a quick timeline to get those resolved. Reaching out to sales guys say, hey, listen, we did X, Y, and Z with the, with the contracts. We'll be able to deliver the following that we did promise. We're behind on you know, these other ones. This is the revised timeline. Sort of talk about, think scrum on you know, how to communicate that, how to set the expectations and how to be as clear and transparent with all the customers as possible.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's really helpful. And we, I get a lot of people that reach out talking about customer success. A lot of people think about it has like this lower level position, mm-hmm. but it's really, really important. It sounds Super like you touch a lot of people. I um, mean, you're prioritizing a lot of things. So when you talk about your time between products, sales, engineering, et cetera, like who are you spending most of your time with when you are elevating these customer frustrations?
2: Probably I'd say nine or 10 times is with the product and the dev team.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, and this is other thing, and it's a great point that, that you mentioned is, especially for an early stage startup, or any startup in any stage, you want to show that growth And even losing one customer, their growth is impacted negatively and it puts more pressure on the sales team. So it is such a massively important component of the the business structure. But yeah, so we spend a lot of time with the dev guys and the engineering guys. And that's always fun because we're sort of, I see us as the bridge between sales and the dev team. And the cool thing with with that is you have the engineers that don't really dabble too much in the sales side. So they don't truly understand that world 100% all, all the time. And the same thing with the sales team. So when we're talking to the dev guys, trying to explain why it's needed and they can't really see the value in it, be like, what do you mean you need an extra box there? It works perfectly fine. You know, nothing's broken. Why do you need, the sales team's like, "Well, you have to have it. I mean, it's such an experience, the emotional connection that we're always sort of, I wouldn't always say, in the Crossfires, but it's such a parental role because we have to make sure both parties are, are happy. And then we've also got the client too who you have, you know, of course, is a is, is client is king, so you got to make sure that, that all their, you know, objections or bugs or feedbacks definitely take into consideration every decision be made.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's very helpful to understand. And so related to the product team that you're working with all the time, what does their day-to-day look like? Because we, mm-hmm. we talked a little bit in the pre-chat about how product management at a startup versus product management at a larger company differs. How does it look like at Onboard IQ?
2: Definitely, and great questions. So a typical day in the life of the, Account success person, so we wake up in the morning and we use another great software called Intercom as our sort mm-hmm. of tool to to communicate with the customers. So typically we get a message on Intercom that is typically one of three things: other something's broken and it's a bug, it needs to be fixed immediately. So from that standpoint, it's all hands on deck, getting in touch with the, the the dev guys, the right guys, whether it's a front end issue, back end issue, or full stack issue, and say, hey, we need that resolved ASAP. So once from there, you know you got the emergency in place, the objection handling's all the way through. So it's been migrated to production. The second type is, hey, we see you guys have this type of feature. It'd be really awesome if we could also do this with it. So now we're entering sort of the feature realm. And that feature realm is taking existing feature and enhancement on it. So we'll table that for for once a second. The third thing is the full-on feature itself saying, hey, listen, nowhere in your software or in your product suite do I see X, Y, and Z. Please, could you guys consider creating, building, and inserting it? And now we've got a brand new feature. So now what we have to do is we have to sit down in a meeting with design guys, product guys, and dev guys at the same time to make sure there's no miscommunication, no telephone going on. And we sit down with them and say, all right, for enhancement, this is the current product or this is current feature. Everyone in agreement? Yeah, we know what it does. Great. This is what this client is, is asking. Does it make sense for them individually as a client and as the product as a whole? Will it benefit all the other clients? And so the debate starts you know, the dev guys say, you know what, it's really tough to build because what they're asking for, it's not built into the logic right now. So we'd have to redo the code. It will take another four or five months. Okay, great. That's good. That's good to consider. Product guys, from your standpoint, well, you know, it's super easy to do because the specs already there. It's literally just adding on extra this, this, and this. So design guys, you guys agree? Yeah, perfect. We'll get the wireframes out. So on their side, it's good. It's good to go. So now we take that expectation and timeline back to clients saying, hey, right now, is this an inhibitor for you guys? Can you not get accomplished what you need to get accomplished because the software can't do what it needs to do with with this enhancement? Or you currently have a workaround for it and this is a wonderful, nice to have. that will make your life a ton easier once it's in, in place. So they go, yeah, fantastic. The full-on feature, that's when we have sort of the in-depth conversation, the late nights, you know, a couple of glasses of whiskey on should we spend a dev time on it? Because one thing I had no idea is how long it takes to actually build something. You know, I often just thought, oh, should work one, two, three. What, it should take about a week or two and get this whole thing up and running? I mean, the whole you know Microsoft thing, I'm sure Microsoft took a couple of days to build and you know we're we, we good to go. And it's funny in that it's almost like constructing the Titanic and moving it through the ocean with massive, massive engines. And then all of a sudden saying, hey, screw the Titanic. Let's put a brand new sort of yacht or brand new sort of cruise liner on the same engine and then slowly start swapping out the engine parts. And that to me was a big eye-opener on even if you want one little thing changed, it takes time to get it right and right the first time.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like a very interesting way to evolve your product that a lot of the innovation is being driven by customer needs. And the customers are telling you, hey, I love this feature, but I would love it if you could you could also do X, Y, and Z. Or, hey, I really need this feature. And it sounds like the communication part is essential to your business's success because if you could identify those needs, address them, and put out new features that make them happy, then they're going to... Stay cost- they're going to remain your customers 100%. and get other people to sign up. And that's what's going to make you successful in the long term. So I guess-
1: And that, that sounds like it's actually consistent with the whole YC ethos of, of making something that people want Too yeah. Is that something that, that was taught to you guys or something that you guys kind of discovered on your own where you were building things in theory and realized that that's actually not what customers wanted before you came on board or is it related to what you learned at Deloitte?
2: Definitely not. I think it's a, a bit of both. We have one of the YC posters up in the office, you know, make something people want. And from my side, dealing at Deloitte, we truly in in the Deloitte business and big shout out to anyone sort of currently in the industry. It's tough. It's a grind. It's very, very different to what I'm doing right now. And I truly loved it. So as long as I preferred one over the other, it's just such a different experience. And the one I'm having right now, I prefer so much more that I don't think I would ever want to go go back. But Deloitte or any of those, those big firms, you're not really selling a physical, tangible product what you're selling is expertise and, you know, the people that are delivering that message. So every single day, you know, we would spend hours in front of clients, spend hours in front of teams trying to guide, teach, learn, and truly listening to what they needed. And then based on that, take that to the next level of, all right, here's a solution to implement. And I think that's one thing that I truly tried to instill when I came to, to onboard IQ is, hey, you guys are smart. I mean, everyone who kind of is in the industry, you know, they're super intelligent, now, I've met tons of guys that didn't go to any Ivy leagues that are just killing it out there because they've got great hustle. They're using their logic every single day, which I love. And these guys were doing that and they were pretty much developing a product that they knew people would love to have. And they did that and they found great success in it on, on what IQ we did. And we sort of came towards that chasm of, all right, Are we continue on going down the line of what we think is trying to put ourselves as sort of industry experts, what we think you should want in the product versus, hey, let's scrap everything we know. Let's throw away our nostalgia, our gut feelings, and truly spend time with the clients listening to what they want and seeing how their hiring needs are changing and trying to adapt as such, trying to modernize, automate, all all of that. And so we took that approach and it's been super, super, super successful for
0: us. Awesome. And one thing we talk about on this podcast is kind of hustle. And it sounds like you guys are always uh, looking for new people and you're scaling the team and recruiting. So the advice we give people is, hey, Find the startups that you like. Research the founders. Research what the company does, and then just reach out, like speak to them. And I guess from your perspective, since it sounds like you guys are hiring, and there's a lot of different positions that are opening up, what is your view on people who take the initiative to, I guess, cold email you or reach out to you on LinkedIn and say, "Hey, I'm interested in your company. Like, let's meet for a coffee."
2: Yeah, hundred percent. Love it. The more hustle, the better, without a doubt. Given for myself, coming from a more more traditional background. If I don't know your name and I don't know who you are, I'll never be able to offer you anything. I'll never be able to open up a door for you or anything. But if you keep on cold emailing me or calling me or making sure to figure out when I get my my cup of coffee without being too stalkerish and bump into me and say, hey, listen, you know, I know you guys are doing hiring space. Right now, you know, the whole world's falling down because, yeah, right now the hourly workers maybe are temporary workers and independent. But shoot, I mean, I'm sure doctors and lawyers and, you know, 2050 want to set their own schedules, work for different hospitals. How are you guys thinking about doing some of some of that? And the fact that you're just thinking about what we're thinking about and showing some passion in it, nine out of 10 times, you'll probably get in front of us and we'll open up some sort of door for you.
1: Yeah. And related to Arthur's question and your answer that you just gave, something else a lot of people think about when they initially reach out to us is is kind of like what you were thinking before you came here, where it's only like engineers that work here and things like that. So right now, maybe talk a little bit about like the size of your team the percentage of engineers versus non-engineers, how that shifts over time or how you guys are thinking about that. I know we talked about it in the pre-chat, but I think yeah. that will be helpful for the listeners.
2: Great, yeah. So it's right now we're, we're at about 12 full-time, of which about 60% are engineers, both front-end and back-end. And I think, you know, for, for our stage startup and being a SaaS company, that's super important because we are developing a product.
1: And what's SaaS for the people that 100%. don't
2: know? 100%. So SaaS is um, software as a service. So if you kind of think about, you know, the the grand boobah out there, Salesforce, It's basically instead of having software installed on your computer or PC or laptop, it's hosted in online environments in the cloud, and you basically can log on and then have full access to those features and and benefits with it. And then from there, the other 40% sort of a mix up between sales and customer success. And one of our, you know, so we've got some really, really good friends since we're moving out to San Francisco, and they also have a couple of startup companies. And right now they're sort of, they have a much larger sales team. And the big reason for, for that is they found a perfect product market fit. We found a really, really good one, but we're not done yet. We yeah. still want to develop. We still want to make sure everything's good to go. And once we found that winning re- recipe, the customer success and sales side of it is going to be super important. And that's pretty much what we're all going to be hiring for. So right now, we're sitting here, you know, close to being August 2016. We're looking for a dev team, but probably about four months from now, it's going to be solely customer success and sales once we found the perfect formula.
0: Awesome. Nice, nice. And uh for our listeners. Let's say they are graduating college, they have certain skill sets, but they're not really sure role they see themselves like going in at a startup. What would you say are the main skills that a customer success rep should have? And that would give our listeners an idea of, oh, like I'm good at these things, so maybe I should consider doing something like customer success.
2: Definitely. A great question. I'd probably say the number one skill is just great interpersonal communication skills. You are dealing with customers on a day-to-day basis. I sort of see us as the hospital. Typically when customers reach out, it's not because they're healthy and they're super happy. It's because something's not going the way they want it to go or they've come to a roadblock and they need help getting over the, the next hump. So you sort of have to have that great skill set of knowing when to read the customer is upset versus not 100% all, all there and being able to objection handle from that po- point onwards. So that's the first skill. The second skill is just good organization. Whether it be if you keep stuff, you know, if you're tracking things on Excel or using of the cool little things like Asana or FieldBook or any of those other great companies are out there, but good organizational skills. So make sure you, you have a list, you work off a list, and you can get the, the job done because there are tons of email communication, um, different messaging communication, phone calls are g- going on. It's happening every hour on the hour. So if you can't keep track of what needs to, needs to be done and it falls through, through the cracks, that's going to be a, b- a big issue. And the last thing is, Fun. I think that's, that's one skill that people kind of forget with a customer success role is you need to be someone that can really enjoy having a good time because some of your days are going to, are going to be tough. Because you're going to come in and from 7 a.m. till the time you walked in, till 7 o'clock, you go home at night, you're just going to be bombarded by complaint after complaint after complaint. And then you have to take that complaint over to a dev team who says, I can't, I can't, I can't. A product team that says, add it to the pile, add it to the pile, add it to the pile. You're going to feel as though nothing's going on. So you need to be able to go home, switch off, have a drink, and just enjoy life in a general. Because any other skill that you need, that startup or that company will teach you from day one. Be it, there be a product that you're selling and operations, whatever the customer success role is, you'll learn about that industry because that's truly what you'll be selling, for lack of a better word, because you're you're salespeople too. Because what you have to also understand is, and what I hear right now, is a huge majority and percentage of your sales is going to come from upsells and upgrades of your current customers, not brand new inbound, outbound. So you become just as important as a VP of sales, or something like that, because you are generating revenue for the company. And in this day and age, in order to do well, you have to show those numbers.
1: So r- related to upsells and VPs of sales and things like that, like what kind of metrics are you guys measuring for someone to be successful in a customer success role?
2: Great question. So currently the metrics that we're trying to optimize for and go orientate is number one, how long it takes from the first time that communication comes in, whether it be email or through intercom, so you do a first response. It doesn't always have to be the answer, but the first response says, hey, listen, we are here. We're not just you know, going to take it on 24 hours, 7 7 basis. We're looking into it. Second thing is, if the upsell or the upgrade opportunity is there, and whether you do it or you identify it, how quickly is it brought to re- realization? Because some people... You know, and this is really cool. If you can learn the skill, great. Please come to me. I'd love to learn it from you too, because I'm not having quite mastered it myself. But there's something a customer will say that will trigger, say, huh, they're ready for the next thing. Hey, uh, we just raised a series B. We're breaking into 13 different new markets. Ding, ding, ding. Great. All right, let's see if we can jump on the phone, figure out how we can grow with them, help them and do all of that and sort of assist the whole process through. And I think that's what a lot of companies have a misconception of is, is that typically the first point that's identified is your customer success person because so they've heard it first. They listen to what the needs are. They know when it's going to happen. You know when things are going to be executed on which the timeline, so they can provide such valuable feedback for you know that wholesale. So I think that's super
1: important to know too. Do they? Let's say that you have someone in customer success that does identify an upsell opportunity, brings it to the account exec or the VP of sales. They close the deal. Do they share in a percentage of that revenue? One hundred commission. 100%. One hundred percent. That's awesome.
2: That's which awesome. We, we do, which is great. Yeah.
1: So.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And for our listeners, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around uh, how many hours people work at a startup, and I know it varies a lot based on uh, the stage of the startup that you're at. Well, onboard IQ being a YC startup, like what are the typical hours are for you and your coworkers?
2: So we we sort of have two shifts. The first shift is the morning crew, and then the late m- morning crew. The morning crew consists of someone like me because I love waking up early. So typically get into the office between about 7, 7.38 and then grinding through till about six or seven, going home, having a little bit a little bit of something, and then just kind of politely checking through the emails if there are any fires addressing. Otherwise, good night, goodbye. The second crew sort of rocks up around about 10, 11. Engineers. Typically engineers. <laughs> <laughs> so they'll rock up 10, 11. But then again, you're getting tons of communication from them two, three in the, in the morning. So I think that it all kind of depends on you as a person. Are you a morning type of person? Yeah. Or you like to get stuff done in, in the evening? Me personally, morning. And to us, I think most startups are the same way. That no one's going to be, you're not going to have a time clock. You're not going to clock in and clock out. No one's truly going to be watching you, your hours. It's all about the results. Are you getting your job done? And are you doing it in such a fashion that it makes sense and you're getting the results? If that's the case, whether you work one hour a day or 20 hours a day, no one could care less. But if you are working that one hour a day and you're not producing the, the results, then it's not only going to be the leadership that comes down on you. Your peers are going to start looking at you and be like, "Really? You know, here yeah, we're slaving away, we're doing tons, we're getting the results, and you're just sort of taking your your own approach." So we, we at Onboard IQ believe in sort of that social justice mm-hmm. in that we don't have to say anything from a leadership standpoint. Your peers will take, you, you know, they'll, they'll do the job yeah, for us.
0: Yes, definitely. And it actually ties in um, with, I guess, the vacation policy that a lot of startups have. A lot of startups these days give a lot a lot of perks to their employees, and one of them is unlimited vacation policy, but. I've actually heard studies where people will actually take classification days knowing that 100%. it's unlimited versus when you're like entitled to 25 days or how many days a year because then uh, you're obligated like you're not going to just take off before a release or you're obligated to your peers to deliver on what your job is. So
2: No, that's great. Actually on Board I Q we do have we have unlimited vacation days with a 2 week minimum you have to take every single mm-hmm. year and how you kind of crew it or how you should th- think about it is for every day you want to take off, especially if you're an engineer, for every day you want to take off, you have to give us a week's notice. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to take out a full week, you got to kind of give, give us a month so we can kind of sort of make sure stuff stay I mean, we definitely things come up and, you know, last minute trips, you know, plan, trips are planned. So, that definitely takes into consideration, but yeah, definitely.
0: Awesome. And I guess, what does the career progression for a customer support person look like? I guess you start out facing the customer a lot, you work with product designers, engineers. So what is kind of like a two, three-year timeline for someone like that? And what are the next positions that open up to them?
2: Great question. So so you have the entry-level customer success person that comes in and you get given a book. And in that book, you've got a list of clients and your job is to, number one, make sure they're happy, any issues are being communicated upstream, and that any upsell opportunities have been identified. At that stage, you sort of move into sort of a senior role in that you now have a few books. And you start working a lot closer with the product team and sort of defining what those features look like because you're super familiar with, in our case, the product, and you sort of can take it to the next level. And then you've got the manager role. Of course, you've got a few teams under you, You know, managing multiple books, the communication back and forth. From there, you sort of do the senior manager role and then a director role. And that's sort of one of been the biggest changes that I went through since coming from, from sort of the, the consulting world is, is you have such a rite of passage. You come in, either as associate or senior associate, whatever the skill set is, you start working your way up the ladder. Here, if you come in day one and all of a sudden day 20, I mean, you're just delivering stuff that's unreal, probably won't go to senior next. Now we're starting to talk, all right, sky's the limit. What do you want to do? Sort of what makes sense? Are you a title chaser? If I just throw a title director at you, is that what sort of makes you happy, keeps you motivated? If I do so, will you perform as such, if not even better? Great. Let's have that, that conversation. So the fact that you can truly be an entrepreneur within a startup itself, not just being an employee and an entrepreneur, I think is very appealing. It's one thing that kind of brought me to it is, It's no longer about how many years have you done it, sort of who's in front of you, any of those office politics. It truly is how can you get the job done and the way you actually kind of get the job done that truly speaks leaps and
1: bounds. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great answer. And um, it also makes me think about the interaction that you're having with the designers and the product people and things like that at onboard iq or in general from what you've seen have you seen anybody kind of like lateral over into like a pm role or into a design role or something like that
2: definitely it happens every single day uh, joe's a great great example when joe started he was in sales and then we kind of joe needed to switch over and he went into more of a, a product role a lot more product design sat with the, the dev guys speaking a few couple of features. He had to learn how to code a little bit. So he was super excited about that from there, transition into more of a strategy growth role for new markets. And I just come 360 now and now he's back in sales. So what happens is, and and everyone out there listening, typically when you join an early stage startup, like I did, the team's small. And if you think about a massive corporation, there are tons of roles that needed to be filled and you just don't have the manpower. So, you know, the wearing the multiple hats cliche is definitely there. Um, you you walk in one day, you're doing sales, the next day you need to help out on customer success. Next day you need to help out on product. Next day you need to jump in and maybe do a couple of little finance things, help out, you know, the team with invoicing and AR and, you know, AP and all, all those wonderful things. So if you're someone that does not like change and likes that full consistency, customer success is in a small stage startup, it's probably probably not the best fit, maybe in a later stage startup, but there's tons of change happening every single day with, with roles too.
0: Awesome. So with that said, We'd like to go to the lightning round, and uh, that's where Arthur, Ruben, and I will ask you several questions and try to give us uh, short answers, but fill them with strategies, tactics, and your resources that you've used to kind of get where you are in life. With that said, Arthur, take it away. Yeah. So with this question, let's take it back to the basics and okay. imagine that you got dropped in a new city. You only have a hundred dollars. You don't know anybody, and uh, you're trying to start over again. So, what would you do? How would you spend the hundred dollars to kind of get your break?
2: I go straight to Yelp. I say, Yelp, I want to look for a bar where all the startups go and network. Go to the bar, sit down, drop the hundred on the table and just network the hell out of the place. Meet someone and until someone says, come in for a job interview, I do not leave.
1: I like it. I like it. And it it sounds like you had an amazing journey and it sounds like there was a lot of smooth sailing. We didn't talk a lot about the downs or the frustrations that you went through, if any. But whenever you hit some of those roadblocks, was there any piece of music or any movie that you watched that kind of inspired you to break through that moment of doubt or frustration? In, in moments of, of troubled
2: waters, I definitely go back to Queen. I love Queen, the band yeah, Queen, yeah, those yeah. Freddie Mercury yeah. fans, 110%. Th- their story, love it. That's sort of my go-to. Second thing is I do a reality check. One thing I love to do when I fly is especially when we come into to land, I take pictures of the cities I'm landing in. And the traffic jams and the millions of people, just to remind myself that, you know, there's just tons of pe- people out there probably going through the exact same thing. that are in a less fortunate situation than I to suck it up, soak it up, and hustle until I, the good days are back.
1: Yeah, quickest way to happiness is gratitude. Awesome. That's it.
0: And uh, for our listeners, what is the one piece of advice that you have uh, for them having gone on this journey and transitioned from consulting to startups?
2: Two pieces of advice. First one was given to me by my old man, so you should travel a bunch. So when I'm in an airport, there's little kiosks. I'm sure you guys have always seen them. Buy a little snack, a little little drink of some sort. There's a little magazine rack in the back always. So my dad always said, you know what, have a look at the magazine rack, see which one you're most drawn to. And over the period of your life, you'll be drawn to completely different magazines too. And that will tell you what your true passion is. And so whether it be gossip column, finance, you know, the entrepreneur, anything that will tell you sort of the industry to choose. And once you've chosen that industry, Join a startup, an early stage company, whatever it is. The fact that you're passionate about it, you'll succeed in it. Second one is the golden handcuffs. So I'm a firm believer, just from where I came from in my experience. My co-founder dropped out of college, is killing it, and that's the path that he chose. I chose the path of I first wanted golden handcuffs. I wanted to work myself in a position, get a skill set, to where I was doing well, where I was comfortable with the money I was earning, the life I was living that when I did jump ship and I wanted to start my own thing or join a small startup like I did, I had those golden handcuffs that I feel as though I could fall back to. And so if you're on that stage,
1: yeah, right. no, that's great advice. And so we also like to talk about related to the advice thing. What is something that you believed going into the pro- this process that you fundamentally believed after going through
0: this process? Something that you, fundi- you changed your mind on that you fundamentally believed before and then once you finished it, you changed your mind on.
2: The rite of passage. So coming into any type of corporate, you have to have a certain number of years under your belt. You have to do a certain things to progress on. I was 100% caught in that race. I didn't want some, you know, if I was been there for three years, some guy who just graduated from college all of a sudden, you know, coming above me. And all of a sudden, when I came out here to the startup world, I've taken the whole conception of age and experience and completely thrown out the window to if you can get the job done and done properly mm-hmm. and to satisfaction, by all means, I'll work under you any day of the week.
0: Yeah. And in the pre-interview you mentioned about your intern, can you tell us a little bit about his story and Definitely. Um, kind of how he got that job?
2: So we have, we have an intern with us right now. His name's Jay and we'll probably be super pumped that I set his name out for you guys. But he's 15 years old and he reached out to us on a bunch of Facebook posts and just cold emailed the heck out of us about Onboard IQ and he's sort of a design guy. So we thought, you know what? Love the passion. Love the hustle. Let's jump on a call with him. And I will, I will never forget some of the first calls, you know, he was in his room studying for the, the, the SATs. <laughs> hey guys, one sec, just got to close the door. I don't want mom to hear this. She, she, you know, she needs to know how I'm studying. So no worries, no worries, go do what you have to do. And uh, he's actually with us for the summer and loving it. And the fact that, you know, at such a young age, he's got the hustle that even if you're 25, 35, 55, 65, by all means, you know, reach out. Cause you never know.
1: Yeah. And the last question is, are there any like online resources or books that you've read throughout your career and, and travels that have inspired you or like helped you get to the point that you're in right now? Or what would you say is most helpful for listeners that want to follow your path?
2: Definitely, definitely. For me personally, the book that, that I've read over and over and over again that I love is by Bryce Courtney. It's called The Power of One. It's a little more about South Africa and sort of the struggle coming through. So any South Africans on the line, definitely read that one. The other online resource, that I think, if you're kind of thinking about it and just kind of going through it, but believe it or not, is an app that I sort of download and it's been around for a while called Flipbook. I'm sure a lot of you guys have it. It's all those news articles and what you're interested in. To me, that's the online version of, of my dad's stand in, in the airport. I keep going through it and I sort of catch myself clicking on the same topic over and over and over. And I'll make a little, little note saying, hey, I need to do more in this or in that industry or in this specific topic because I'm finding myself really, really liking it. Same thing with the wife. She and I are very, very different. So to get her perspective, you know, I kind of see what she's been up to and she's reading. So definitely everything online, you know, the Cosmopolitans, the Vanity Fairs, all all of that. And that's such a different market too that I always want to find myself saying, hey, why the interest there for her and trying to learn from that too. So, you know, in in this day day and age, there there are tons of books out there. I mean, whether it's been sales books, when I first started in the sales role, it was from, you know, good to great. There were great books, you know. The Acceleration formulas is another great one. But truly, to me, the only resource that I rely on day in and day out is going onto Google and typing "from rags to riches tech" and just reading the stories of co-founders and founders who literally came here with nothing. Which was not my case. Please, please don't be any mm-hmm. misconceptions. I did not sleep on any couches. I did not, you know, come out here in my car. I did not have to hustle to to, to that extent. My story was a little bit different. So if you are so sort of graduating college. That's what you want to do by all means. Probably can't relate, relate to the way I did it, but my co-founders exactly what they did. And if you have any questions, just reach out to me. I'll put you in contact with, with them. But for me, it was more of, I'm in my late 20s. I'm coming from an industry that I truly enjoyed. So everyone else in the consulting sort of finance, investment, banking world, and I wanted to make the switch. And so the switch was just coming out, you know, finding a place that it wasn't too grungy, You know, going to join a startup and just you know making the, the most of it.
0: Awesome. And uh, what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you?
2: Pop me in, an email, Nico, N-I-C-O or lowercase at onboard OnboardIQ, dot com. You can hook me up on, on LinkedIn too. Type in Nico Roberts. You'll see OnboardIQ right there and pop me a, a message and I'll definitely get back to you guys.
0: Are you on Twitter too? or OnboardIQ is I personally am not. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, thanks for coming on our podcast. We had a great no time and we'll include a lot of those useful tips and resources in our show notes. And we'll have to have you on again in a few weeks. Uh, I mean, in a few months.
2: <laughs> great. No, I appreciate it. Thanks yeah. guys appreciate for, for reaching out and yeah, exciting. Have a lovely rest of your day. Awesome, All right
0: man. Thanks. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks for checking us out, we appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't want you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.